0: Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter number four. And while I'm turning there, I say, uh, "Sorry, I wasn't here last week for the Lord's Day of worship." And thanks, I want to give Jim Ackerman a big uh, thank you from my heart for filling in on short notice, and uh, he was able able to take God's Word in hand and give a sermon. And and that's that's really something that every man, in the church should maybe in the back of your Bible work you up a little sermon and get it tucked in there. Because <laughs> you never know when you'll be called upon to, to, to give a talk, to give a talk. Of course, uh, my dad, his advice to me when I was a young preacher was uh, always preach, just preach what you know, don't preach what you don't know. That would seem intuitive, wouldn't it? <laughs> but it's not, you know, preachers don't use, seem to worry about that too often. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended him. Now, take your copy of God's word and turn to Luke chapter 4. And I want you to look at Luke 4, verse 13. There's... Luke adds one more sentence to this story. Luke chapter 4, verse 13. In verse 12, you'll see it's nearly the same words, slightly different. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Well, let's pray together. Father, as we take your hand, your As we take the word of God in hand, I ask for your help. I claim the promise of the Holy Spirit to give this message in this moment. We pray these things in Jesus' most glorious and wonderful name. Amen. If you've started reading the Bible this year, maybe you started with the New Testament and read this section already. The New Testament starts with the birth and ministry. Thank you. Here's a test. It works. Thank you, Daryl. The New Testament starts with the birth of Jesus and the ministry of John the Baptist and quickly moves to the baptism of Jesus. Now, the birth of Jesus and his baptism are unique, and the things surrounding those two events are never to be repeated events. But right on the heels of the baptism of Christ comes this 40 days of spirit-led, now notice this, it's spirit-led starvation and suffering. Jesus goes to a place where he is suffering, where he's without food, without what he needs. He's led there by the Holy Spirit, which should tell you and I that not everything God leads us into is going to be pleasant. Not everything that God leads us into is pleasant. Now, the word translated here in our scriptures as hungry can could also be translated really hungry. <laughs> or starved, or longing for food. Now, hunger is something that we can all understand, isn't it? And I think in the last decade or so, we've all become acquainted with the power of hunger. Have you guys ever heard of being hangry? Have you ever been around somebody who is obviously hangry? Now, Snickers, they scored advertising gold with their You're Not You When You're Hungry campaign. And this is not a new thing, this whole idea of not being normal when you're hungry. In Scripture, we have that story of the great hunter in the Old Testament, a man named Esau who came in from the field after hunting. He was so hungry that he was willing to sell his valuable birthright to his brother simply to have some food to satisfy him. He would do anything. If you've ever seen that great classic Western, Red River, with John Wayne and Montgomery Clift, You'll know that a great stampede takes place in that film because one of the cowboys is so addicted to sugar that he sneaks into the chuck wagon at night to steal some sugar and he makes a big, loud boom, 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 boom and starts a stampede that results in the death of some of his friends. John Wayne, after that episode, you guys know who John Wayne is? At the end of that that scenario, John Wayne horsewhips the guy for doing it. it. It's strange what people will do when they're hungry. When they're hungry. Now, there are different types of hunger to think about. We can be hungry for affection. You can be hungry for sexual satisfaction. You can be hungry for status or just for more stuff. We could probably work up a very long list of things. And I was tempted to work up a a long list of things we could be hungry for, but that would make the sermon very long. And you're all in favor of that not taking place, probably, because we're hungry. We are hungry for things we don't have, and this hunger, this desire can affect us so strongly. And friends, today I want to talk to you about temptation. I want you to think about hunger as in desire, sort of like the word lust. Now the word lust has several meanings, and mostly we connect it to sexual desire, but it can simply refer to very strong desire anything. In in the last chapters of Luke, Luke 23, where Jesus is having the Lord's table with the disciples, Jesus says, with desire, I've desired to eat this meal with you. And the Greek word translated desire there is the very same Greek word that's translated as lust in other places, telling us this was a very strong desire that Jesus had to do this. But I want us to think about Lust in terms of desire to have a strong feeling for something. When we are in the grip of desire, we are weak. And when we are in the grip of desire, our resolve or even our awareness of danger can fail us. And it is right then, in that moment of desire and weakness, that Satan or his minions tend to attack. In our script this morning, Luke chapter, Mark chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, We see that Jesus is hungry. And it is when Jesus is hungry that Satan comes to tempt him to sin. Now, why why does Satan do this? Why does Satan come to tempt Jesus? Now, I think there's a reason for it. I'm not sure about this. I wouldn't die on this hill. But I think that Satan comes and tempts Jesus because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in the Old Testament, there was a process for seeing if the, they would use lambs in the Old Testament and they would kill those lambs and offer their blood on the altar and those lambs had to be a certain quality of lamb. They had to be a certain kind of lamb. They had to be perfect. They had to be without spot, without blemish. And in Leviticus chapter 22, verses 17 to 25, there is a whole description of the qualification process, of the examination process. Those lambs, you didn't just go out there and pick out the prettiest and say, that's the one. They would take that lamb and they would watch it for 14 days to be sure it was in good health. They would feel it all over to be sure that it was without defect or flaw. One time my neighbor came over to see me. And he said, Terry, want want you come over and look at my prize-winning dog? And I was like, okay. And this little, he went over there and this little white dog, I think the dog's name was Fluffy or Snowball or something weird like that. And the little dog was, was a real long-haired dog, had real soft hair. And he, the dog comes running over to me and he says, Terry... This is, this is my dog. And he said, isn't she pretty? I said, yeah, she's pretty. He said, feel her. And I've heard pet, pat, rub, but feel? He said, feel her all over. And I was, I was like... He said, there ain't a bump or a flaw on this dog. This dog is perfect. She's a prize winner. She's magnificent. And I guess she was. But that's the kind of investigation they would do to the sheep. These lambs they would offer as sin offerings. They had to be perfect. They had to be without blemish or spot. And I think this temptation of Jesus is the examination of Jesus to see if he really is perfect. That he really is able to be the lamb that takes away sin. Now without a doubt, without a doubt, before Jesus would became flesh on earth in the heavenly realm, Jesus and Satan knew who each other were. Had to be. Satan was one of the angels that God created sometime in the six days of creation. Jesus, obviously, he was the creator himself. He's the one that spoke all these things into existence. Satan knew who Jesus was. But this encounter of Jesus and Satan is something very new because up until now... Jesus and Satan had never met face to face with Jesus being a man. Remember, Jesus is a man. How much of a man was Jesus? He was a man just like you and I are. Just like you and me, a man. Five fingers and five toes. Two eyes, a nose, two ears, a tongue, teeth, hair, a beard, a goatee probably. Jesus (laughs) Jesus <laughs> Jesus was was just like you and me. He had a skill, he had a trade. He was a working man. And he was poor. Didn't have a lot of stuff. He had no home, had no household properties. He's a man. And here Satan encounters him when this man is hungry, hungry after not eating or drinking for 40 days. Now Satan knows that Jesus is from heaven Satan knows that this man is from Nazareth and he's the son of God and he sees him now as a man but how human is Jesus exactly now Satan sees that Jesus is very hungry just like a normal man would be and so Satan comes to try to get Jesus to sin against the father so that he cannot be the lamb that takes away sins he comes to try to get Jesus to sin, so that Jesus will no longer be the Son in whom I am well pleased. Now Jesus, like Adam, is a representative. Now, when I made these slides, there's supposed to be a, uh, 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 all right, there's supposed to be an arrow right here, but we couldn't get him to come through. We just imagine there's an arrow. Adam represents all people. Jesus represents. All believers. Jesus, like Adam, is a representative of a group of people. You can see this in Romans chapter 5. Adam represented all people of all times. Now when we say that, it means that when Adam sinned, as the federal head of all men, Adam's disobedience was imputed to everyone who is descended from Adam. If you're here and you're a human being, you are descended from Adam. Which means you were born with a sin nature. You were born inclined to sin. Nobody had to teach you how to do it. You didn't go to any lying classes or stealing classes or lusting classes. You come by those things naturally. Adam is the federal head representing all men. Jesus also is a federal head. He represents all people who believe in him. Now Jesus, He's coming to the world to be the Savior of all who will believe, but He can only be the Savior of all who believe if He is without sin. If He sins, He cannot be the Savior. If He sins, His blood cannot atone for your sins. Jesus was a sinless man, and Satan comes to tempt Jesus to sin. Satan wants to disrupt the plan of redemption. Satan wants to mess up God's plan, so he comes to do this. So there are two lessons here, in case you haven't noticed. There's two lessons. First of all, is that Satan will come and tempt us. He tempts the children of God. He came and tried to tempt Jesus, and he'll try to tempt you. The second lesson is that Satan will come and try to tempt us when we are weak. Do you know why Satan comes when we're weak? Because he's a punk. He punches below the belt. He, like Mike Tyson, bites you on the ear when he's afraid he's going to lose the fight. It's, it's, he, he is vicious. When he sees you have a weakness, he comes after you. Satan is the enemy. And he comes when Jesus is weak. He kicks you when you're down. He sees your weakness and he's on you. Jesus, Satan comes when we are weak. So, my friends, when you are going through t- things that make you weak, remember that. Now, let's look at these three temptations of Christ, all right? There are three temptations, and they're all common to us all. Satan comes to Jesus. He knows Jesus is the Son of God. And Satan appeals to Jesus as the Son of God because he says every time, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God. But Jesus responds not as a Son of God. Jesus responds as a man. Jesus is a man, therefore, as a Jew, he was circumcised. He's under the law of Moses. And so every time Satan comes to tempt Jesus to sin, Satan, Jesus responds to Satan, not with with cute answers, not with challenging, complicated reasoning. He just simply says what Scripture says. And my friends, this is where you and I have to get to, too, as Christians is that we respond with just what Scripture says. Not a lot of of around-the-barn talk. Not a lot of complicated reasoning. Just Scripture says, and that's good enough. When I was a kid, you'd see bumper stickers on people's cars at church parking lots that said this, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it, right? And that's the way we all ought to be. If God's Word says it, that's just what it says. If we don't like it, As my dad would say, lump it. (laughs) God's word is true. God's word is true. Now Satan comes to tempt Jesus. Let's look at the first temptation, Matthew 4, verses 3 to 4. If you want to look back again. The tempter comes to him and says, Now remember Jesus is 40 days without eating. And the tempter comes and says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus says, it is written, man should not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. What What is going on here? Satan is saying to Jesus, you have to take care of yourself. He's saying to Jesus, God has left you here without any food, without any water. God does not care for you. Satan is saying to Jesus, he's left you here for 40 days with nothing. The Holy Spirit led you out to this place where there's nothing for you. You're dying, you're starving, you're suffering. Satan is saying, God does not care about you because he's not taking care of you. I wonder if any of you ever felt that way. That you wonder, is God... Does God really care about me? As I'm sick with this horrible disease, as I'm sick with cancer, as my mind is fading, as I can see these horrible things, these problems taking place in my life, have you ever wondered, does God really care about me? Because if God cared about me, why is He letting bad things happen to me? You ever felt that way? I would venture to say, I wouldn't be surprised if every person in this room has felt that way. Satan is saying, God does not care about you. Jesus responds by citing Deuteronomy 8.3. Listen to the reading. This is Deuteronomy 8, verse 1 through 3. This is Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today. This is the Lord speaking. So that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. He humbled you, causing you to know hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, what is happening here in Deuteronomy is God is saying that he humbled them. It means that God took Israel, his chosen covenant people, into situations where they were forced to face their own inability to take care of themselves. God had to show them, you cannot take care of yourself. You cannot keep yourself alive. So God took them into tough situations where there was no food and no water, and God miraculously supplied their need. You see, the Israelites for 40 years lived on manna from heaven and water from heaven, supplied by God supernaturally for 40 years. God took care of them. They only lived... Because God provided what they needed. And the point here is that people live because God says they can live and they die for the same reason. Jesus is saying to Satan that his survival does not depend on his ability to take care of himself but on God. Jesus is saying, My faith is in the Father. I don't need to provide for myself because I live because God has said I can live. There's no way to explain why some people can live through so many horrible tragedies. So many wrecks and crashes and health problems. is simply because God says live. 40 days and 40 days, 40 days and 40 nights without food or drink. Well, if that happens to you, you're going to die. You're going to die. But God keeps you alive. Satan is, Jesus is saying, I don't have to do anything. If God wants me to live, I'll live. And that's something you and I need to keep in mind during this times in which we live in. Where we're all scared to death of getting coronavirus. Or COVID-19. Or the other top three killers. Cancer, heart disease, and teenage drivers. We live because God keeps us alive. Jesus says, I am living because of God's Word. Now, some of my friends would say, "Well, this is talking about Scripture. You need all the words of Scripture. But that is not what he's saying. He's saying God keeps you alive with His will, His Word. His Word. Well, Satan does not stop. Temptation number two. The devil then takes Jesus to to the holy city. And has him stand on the highest point of the temple. And Satan says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Now notice what Satan does here. Satan now is going to use scripture against Jesus. He's smart. If you ever get into a debate with a well-read atheist or Islamic teacher, they're going to use the Bible against you. They're going to use the Bible against you. Satan does the very same thing here. Look what Satan says. Satan says, it is written... He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Satan says, jump off this tower, jump off this place, and let's see if God will do what he says. What Satan is saying here in so many words is, if you have faith in God, because that's what Jesus has already said in verses 3 and 4, Satan now says, if you really have faith in God, then prove it. Jump off this building. Force God to prove that he can be relied on. Jesus replies with Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, which references Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. And those passages tell us that trying to force God to act is not living by faith in God. We live by faith, trusting in God to meet our needs because He can. When we have a need that is not met, we have to accept that God knows better than we do. We have to learn to submit to God's will for our life. One time I owed $7,000 to the bank. $7,000. And, you know, I, and I, was, I, was going, I, was, I was a member of a church, and the pastor of the church told me, he said, I'm not going to recommend you to go be a pastor anywhere until you're totally out of debt, until you have that $7,000 paid off. Which... I didn't like hearing that because you can't let debt stop you, right? <laughs> You're supposed to say right. <laughs> and so he said, he said, why don't you pray and ask the Lord to give you $7,000 to pay off that debt then you can go be a pastor somewhere. And I said, okay. So I went home and I prayed, Lord, I need $7,000. And I prayed for that for one year. Guess how much money the Lord gave me? Just enough to get by on. (laughs) Because I had other bills I had to pay. There was a reason why I owed $7,000, right? I didn't have the money. But I just went on praying and praying and praying for it until finally one day I just said, you know, I guess maybe the Lord's not going to give me that $7,000. Now, long story short, I finally did pay off that $7,000. But along the way, I accrued a lot of other debts. (laughs) You know? Sometimes you have to just, okay, the Lord doesn't, He doesn't want to meet these needs. And I can say, all my needs the Lord has met. I've always had food and drink and a place to sleep and clothes to wear. But we can't force God to act. Satan is saying, jump off this tower, take a risk, take a chance, make God do something, manipulate God, make God subservient to you. And Jesus says, this is not the way we're supposed to do it. We don't take reckless chances. We don't make foolhardy decisions. We trust in the Lord to take care of us. And we submit to Him. Submit to Him. Now, the third temptation. It's in verses 8 to 10. The devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed Him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this will I give to you, He said if you will bow down and worship me. So Satan is making his final offer here. Now, now, one of my friends told me that he felt like Satan was telling a lie here. That Satan was saying something that he couldn't do. Now, this is the thing to think about. Was Satan lying to Jesus or not? Does Satan have the power to give to people wealth and prosperity? Does Satan, have, does Satan have power over some things? Does Satan have dominion over some things? And the answer to that question is he does. He does. Satan is... Now, what's striking about this, is, in my opinion, is Satan is saying to Jesus... I will give to you everything that God has given me if you will just worship me one time. Listen to what the scripture says. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. Satan wants to be worshipped so much that he's willing to give up everything he possesses to get one act of worship from Jesus. It's quite, a, it's quite a thing. I don't think Satan was lying. But notice what Jesus says. Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Satan ex- offers to exchange everything God has given him power over for one act of worship from Jesus. And what Satan is doing is he's wanting G- Jesus to exchange eternal future glory for temporal glory. Temporal glory. You see, Satan is appealing to Jesus in his manhood. Jesus is the poor son of a poor family with no family holdings. And he offers fabulous wealth to Jesus. And Satan knows how people are. Have you ever heard this kind of scenario Let's say you're a a poor man, a poor woman, and you have one kid. One kid. And some man with great wealth comes down who has no children of his own. Him and his wife, they come to your house, and they sit in the living room with you, and they bring you, and they say, let's see your kid. And they bring you your little kid, you know, he's five or six years old, and, and they say, look, if you'll give us this kid, let us have your kid to be our kid, we'll give you, you know, 25 or 30 million bucks. We'll take this kid back to our house. We'll raise him, put him in the finest schools, give him the best of everything. Will you do it. You ever seen a movie like that or a show like that? What, what a proposition. Have you ever thought about what you would do in that moment? Especially if you're really poor. It's, it's, and how good the kid was. <laughs> That might be the determining factor. I don't know. You guys, ever, you guys know who O. Henry was, the uh, short story writer? He wrote that little story, The Ransom of Red Cloud. You guys ever read that story? It's a, it's a great story. Go home and read it. Satan offers Jesus everything he can just to get Jesus to worship him one time. But Jesus knows something. Jesus cites Deuteronomy 6.13. Now, this is important. It's not listed fully in Matthew, but, but listen. It is listed. Look what Jesus says. It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Serve Him only. Well, Satan didn't ask for service, did he? Did Satan say, serve me? All Satan says is, worship me one time. You see, Jesus knows that worship is service. What you worship, you serve. What you worship, you serve. Who and what you worship, you serve with yourself. Satan comes to Jesus and tries to get Jesus to give up future glory for temporal glory. We saw this same kind of temptation in the garden with Satan and Eve. Where Satan Satan appealed to her. And said, if you'll do this, you'll become great. And Satan comes to Jesus and says, Worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you everything that God has given to me. But Jesus says, no. He says, God's word says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus says, no. And a lot of our struggles with temptation come down to this very word, no. No. I wonder how many battles we could win spiritually if we could just learn to say no at the right times. I'm not going to do that. God's word says that's wrong. Young people, men and women, saying no to the wrong things is just as important as doing the right things. You have to learn to say no. Sometimes that's all it takes is a word. Remember our mother Eve. She was deceived by Satan. She could have said no. She could have said, "The Lord has said not to do this. I'm not going to." But she says yes to his temptation, and like dominoes, we're all suffering. Suffering. Satan comes, and he appeals to us. He knows what we. He knows our weaknesses. He knows how men are. I want you to notice. Every time I push this button, I'm adding three minutes to the sermon. All right. Can you guys click it back there, Mike? It may have went to sleep because I let it said, so long. Well. Anyway, don't you love technology? I do. Oh, thanks a lot. Did you do that, Mike, or did I do it? He did it. Okay. Mike, I'll just holler at you for the next few, and you click them. Not holler at you, but just say, hey, Mike. <laughs> In Matthew four eleven, it says the devil left him. Now, if you have a Schofield Reference Bible, there's a little note after verse eleven, and it says to look at James chapter four verse seven, which is worth doing. James four seven says this: Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, and he will flee. Satan. Appears to be more powerful than he is. Satan appears to have everything he needs to win the battles. But Satan is not all powerful. Satan is not all powerful. Now, Christian friends, I want you to listen to me. As we're watching the world go up in flames around us, it looks like Satan is winning, doesn't it? It looks like Satan's winning, but he ain't winning. I read this morning in Proverbs sixteen four that the Lord has purposed all things, even the wicked, for the day of judgment. You have to rest in what God's word says. Satan is not going to win. He is not currently winning. He is not currently winning. How do we know he's not currently winning? Because Revelation is in the Bible. I read the back of the book. We win. We win. In the last day, Satan's going to be bound for a thousand years and cast in the bottomless pit for a thousand years while God's people have the time of their life on earth. Then, Satan's going to be loose from the bottomless pit. And what's he going to be loose to do? He's going to go deceive the nations. Who's he going to deceive? He's not deceiving anybody that wasn't already deceived. He's deceiving all the, all the other people from hell who are let out of hell at the last day. But Satan's future is the same as their future. Cast into the lake of fire forever, or they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's Satan's future. But your future as a Christian is not that. It's to be in the heavenly realm for all time. Where there's no wickedness, there's no evil, nothing can cause crying or pain. Satan is not all-powerful. He is not winning. My friends, who, I'm, not, I'm not an all-millennialist. You guys know what all-millennialism is? I'm not an all-millennialist, but I have a lot of friends who are all-millennialist. And if you ask them, they say, Satan's running around the world doing a lot of bad stuff, but he's on a, real, he's on a chain. <laughs> he can only do what God lets him do. He doesn't have all power. He's limited. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Jesus is greater. The Holy Spirit is greater. Satan is not all-powerful. James says, submit yourself to God. Submit yourself to His Word as Jesus does. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. All it takes is submission to God's Word to send the devil running. Now the question would be now, is the Holy Spirit inside of you? Have you believed the gospel? Scripture tells us Satan can be defeated by us, by little old us, through simple, humble submission to God. To God. We read read Luke 4.13 a little bit ago. And it reminds us, it says in Luke 4.13, that Satan, here's what it says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Satan is defeated. He runs away, but he comes back. Satan is not the, all, the most powerful being, but he is very persistent. You and I can overcome him, but he will come back. You're going to face temptations over and over again. Have you ever faced the same temptation to sin more than once? You ever confessed the same sin more than once? It, he comes back. He comes back. He's, he's resilient. Now, as a Christian, there are some things you've got to be aware of. As a Christian, you will be tempted to commit all kinds of sins. Any sort of sin you can think of, you'll be tempted to commit it. And the things and ideas that we can entertain in our minds can be so rotten that we'd be embarrassed if anyone knew. Aren't you glad nobody can read your mind? Aren't you glad? If, if, if people could read my mind, I would have been beat to death long ago. Beat to death. And the worst part about the wicked things that go through our minds is that we are actually attracted to these wicked things because we're fallen creatures. Now, friends, I'm, pretty, I'm a pretty open person. There's a lot, of, a lot of sins that I don't mind talking about that I, that I say I did or I wanted to do. Or whatever, but there's a whole lot of other stuff that I ain't never talking to nobody about. Only person knows is God, and me. Because we're sinners. And as a Christian, that doesn't go away. It's still there. It's still present. I listened to, I listened to Don Fortner this morning, my friend Don. He's in heaven. Don, Don, had, Don believed a lot of things that I don't, I don't agree with. But one thing Don and I are in agreement about is that only Christians know how bad they really are. Christians, you can't be a Christian and be self-righteous. You have to to come face to face with your own unrighteousness to be a Christian. You know that all of your righteousness comes from outside of you. It comes from Jesus, not from you. Isaiah said all our righteousness is as filthy rags. And I think the NIV says it like this. All our righteousness is as menstrual cloths. That's yourself. That, that's the kind of righteousness you have. We're clean. We get righteousness from Jesus, not from ourself. And you're going to be tempted to do all kinds of sins. Leviticus 18 has this this incredible directory of sins. They range from having sex with animals to having sex with your daughter-in-law. Leviticus 18. If you ever ask yourself, why in the world did God have to put that in the Bible? Because those are the very things that people will do. People will do that. It's in the Scriptures. And you say, well, I'm a Christian. You could be tempted to those very same things. The temptations are there. They'll come up. All kinds of, temp- of things you'll be tempted to do. So what do we do? What do we do? How do we work against temptations? I'm going to give you four things. only three up here, but there's going to be four. First of all, we have to fight temptation with Scripture. Reading the Bible will really help you out. Listen to Psalms 19, verses 7 through 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. Reading God's word regularly is like shining a flashlight on the path of life. It helps you know some things. It helps you know how God is and how Satan is and how you are reading the Bible. I do not I I feel myself getting mad about this, but i got to get a grip. Because I just do not understand why Christians don't read the Bible. I mean, you'll spend... Oh, so I'm getting mad. This, that's, that... Why am I... That's self... You know why I'm getting mad? Because it's self-righteousness. I'm feeling self-righteous. <laughs> My friends, God has given to us special revelation in His Word. You cannot know God adequately apart from Scripture. You cannot know Him adequately apart from Scripture. Apart from Scripture, what you get is homespun religion, which is nothing but garbage. I've got to get a grip here. Because you'll get on Facebook and you'll scroll, your, you'll scroll yourself to death on Facebook. Look at people's pictures, their vacations, and you'll get on TikTok and watch hours. Twitter, YouTube videos, 80% of men spend over four hours a day on YouTube. 80% of men. We have plenty of time. <laughs> Not even get on football. Because that's, that's too close, isn't it? We've got to read the Bible. You've got to read the Bible. You don't have to read it all in a day. But you've got to have spent time in Scripture, reading Scripture to really know God. To really know God. If. Number two, you need to avoid places and things that tempt us to sin. Avoid places and things that tempt us to sin. And we've got to remember to call things what they are. Identifying things as sin is very helpful. It's a sin. Don't do the sin. Don't justify it. Don't do the sins. Listen to 2 Timothy 2.22. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, flee evil desires. Run away from them. Run away from them. When I was a kid, me and my friends used to go through neighborhoods in the town we lived in, and we would ring doorbells and run away. Anybody ever do that? Ring and run. I never ran faster in my life than I ran on those nights. Ring and run. Fleeing away. Fleeing away. One time I was in Arkansas, and I was pastoring a church. Pastoring a church, and I was down inside the church. Have you ever been inside a church at night? Nobody else is there? A church can be very spooky. I was down this church in Arkansas, and I was in there. And uh, I read Frank Preddy's book, This Present Darkness, when I was a teenager, and so that made me afraid of the dark my whole life. I still am afraid of it. But I was down in the church, and I heard some noises, and they were unearthly. And man, I ran like crazy. I ran home, and come in the house, <gasps> and I was like, what's wrong? Nothing. <laughs> Flee youthful desires. Run away from sinful things. Number three, submit to God. That's what Jesus did. Jesus said, God's word says this, I'm not going to do that. 1 Peter 1, verse 14 says, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Obey God. The fourth thing is you've got to be humble. My friend Don Fortner He was of the opinion that when Christians get uppity, God sends them temptations or trials to humble them. To humble them. Proverbs 11.2 says this, When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility comes wisdom. When we get lifted up in pride, we're going to get knocked down in humility. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says um, I can't remember what it says. It says I'm trying to remember. I guess I could turn there and look at it. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Right. Pride goes before destruction and a hearty spirit before a fall. We get lifted up with pride. Something's going to happen to us. God's going to humble us. He's going to humble us. Well, you say, well, I'm not doing too good at that stuff. I've been succumbing to a lot of temptations. Well, when you succumb to temptations... if you feel pretty pretty lousy about it, because if you're a Christian and you sin, you're going to feel lousy about it. You you may be here today and and you're a Christian and you've just been doing so many sins that you just feel like a zero with the ring rubbed out. You just feel like nothing. Listen to what John says in 1 John 2, verses 1 to 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not for ours, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. If you you have been sinning as a Christian, God's not going to cast you away because you're imperfect. He's not going to cast you away. Confess your sins to Him and come back to Him. He'll take you back. He'll restore the fellowship. He'll cleanse you and He'll wash you. I take 1 John 2 verses 1 to 2 to mean that you can't sin your way out of God's love if you're His Son. It's like children can't, can't sin their way out of your love let's pray together. Dear Father, help us in our temptations. Deliver us from the evil of pride that overwhelms us and pollutes us. Help us to build good habits of spiritual discipline and prayer and reading the scriptures. Forgive us for calling evil things good and for pandering to our sinful natures. Lord, cleanse us by your mercy in the redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. Amen.